0: Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies, and in this case, doom. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 140 for the first half of September 2015. The topic I'm going to talk about today is Doom's Month, September 2015. After 2012 came and went, and we all survived... I was asked by a wise and now very busy conspiracy skeptic, what would the next Doomsday be? I told him I didn't know, that people will always try to find something to be afraid of and hype up, but that it will likely involve the same elements or mechanisms as before, but also something that's unexpected. Enter September 2015, Dooms Month. I hadn't planned to talk about this, but then I listened to episode 364 of the Reality Check podcast, and everything sorta came together for me. And so, while doing bicycle crunches, ski squats, V-ups, and then my elliptical, I composed this episode in my head, deciding to address some of the doomsday ideas floating around for this month that are, well, not to give away the end too soon, baloney. There are three main ones that I'm going to talk about, and after writing this, there are actually five, but the first two are going to go by really fast. First up, Mars. Refer to episode 118. Next up, alright, a bit more detail. Annually around this time, the internets are full of rumors that Mars is going to appear as big as the moon in the sky, and some people even go so far as to say this means bad things for Earth. I went into a significant amount of detail about this in episode 118, so to be succinct, it's really not possible and there's nothing to worry about. This particular rumor is also often most associated with late August, but because of other things in September this year, I've seen some people misappropriating it to be in September. Next up is the Lunar Eclipse in September 2015. See episodes 85 and 131. This one is actually true. There is a total lunar eclipse in September 2015. It also happens to coincide with a Jewish holiday, Sukkot. Pretty sure I nailed that pronunciation, which is important, because after episode 85, I think my mother got a headache from all of the eye-rolling in my attempt to pronounce Jewish holidays. You know, sort of like Shavuot or Shavuot, probably. Anywho, this is the last total lunar eclipse for two years. And it's the last tetrad for quite a while, where a tetrad is a total of four total lunar eclipses spaced six months apart. And this particular tetrad happens to coincide with important Jewish holidays, which isn't surprising since, well, Jewish holidays are built on the Jewish calendar, which is a lunar calendar, and there are a lot of Jewish holidays. All of this is described in episode 85. Also described in episode 85 is that various apocalyptic, messianic Jewish rabbis and Christian pastors have decided to make a big deal out of this coincidence. As I describe in that episode and a later blog post, linked up in the show notes, is that to get everything to fit, they have to bend the facts. A lot. It's a really basic correlation equals causation claim and logical fallacy, where they say important bad things happen and happened during those events, except most that they point to actually happened a year or two before or after the tetrads, and they skip over some tetrads that they couldn't fit any important bad thing to their ideas. Not only that, but for people who claim to be reading signs from God, They can't even read NASA's eclipse website where it says that the lunar eclipse tables are for the past 4,000 years and future 1,000 years. They say, as in these people promoting this claim about tetrads and blood moons and Jewish holidays, they say that NASA's website reports these lunar eclipses for the past 5,000 years that's wrong. Now, it might be a very minor point, but it calls into question how good these people are at actually reading, even well, less obvious signs, which is the entire basis for the claims, when they can't even read a basic website. As another gratuitous side note, well, kind of because, again, these people claim that they're reading signs in the heavens from God, they can't even read basic websites or basic history, well, Pastor Mark Biltz, the guy who originated this idea, claimed in an interview that Christopher Columbus was Jewish. In fact, Biltz insisted that Columbus was Jewish. This is despite the fact that Christopher Columbus was a Roman Catholic. Again, this is signs of poor scholarship and a willingness to warp an idea to fit his, well, his ideas. Not only that, but as I mentioned in episode 131, because of Earth's non-sphericity and atmospheric refraction. The total lunar eclipse in April of 2015 that was needed for this to be a tetrad wasn't technically necessarily a total lunar eclipse. Now you might think that I'm being sort of uh, pedantic and somewhat flippant and overly dismissive with this particular claim, but I kind of feel like I'm giving it about as much, if even more, attention than it really deserves. It's an example of using scary sounding words, blood moons, for a mundane but neat astronomical event, a lunar eclipse, that means nothing. It's been hyped literally like crazy, including in books and movies about it, and fearmongers handing out books to all of the U.S. Congress people, Jonathan Cahn, I'm talking about you. Perhaps my personal biggest annoyance about this is going to be that when absolutely nothing happens, these people are not going to be held accountable for their fearmongering. Just like All of those people who say that some random asteroid or comet is going to cause doom and gloom, which happens, coincidentally, to be the third claim for the Dooms Month of September 2015. And this is what they were talking about on episode 364 of The Reality Check, which you can find at trcpodcast.com, a great website. This is something that I didn't even know was a thing until recently, and it's to what I was referring in my conspiracy skeptic interview many, many years ago. Some random claim that pops up that just so happens to get picked up by enough people that for some unexplicable reason goes viral. You can't predict what will be picked up, you can't predict really what form it will take, other than it will be baseless but stoke a lot of fear. I first heard about it this summer on that bastion of good journalism and level-headed thinking, the late-night paranormal radio program Coast to Coast AM. People were asking about September 2015 as something bad going to happen, like an asteroid hitting, and for once, guests who were being asked about this said that they hadn't heard anything, but that it sounded like all the other similar claims that never materialized. I then heard about it when a caller asked Richard Dolan, who was a guest on Art Bell's new Midnight in the Desert radio program. Richard Dolan said that it was bollocks, that's my phrasing, that people were saying this all the time, and that this one was no more real than the last one. He even added a gratuitous mention of Richard Hoagland's claims about Comet Elenin and how ridiculous that seemed in hindsight. This is something I discussed in detail in episode 5 of the podcast. In response, Richard Hoagland, whose radio program immediately follows our bells, well, let's just say he strenuously disagreed, and he was rather flustered about it. He remained flustered for several nights, bringing it up each night. But I think I'm digressing. The point is, it was making its way into these programs, meaning that multiple people were coming across it. I continued to hear it on other Coast to Coast episodes throughout the last two months. Otherwise, the next mention I saw about this was on Doubtful News, when NASA came out and said with an official statement that no, there was no large asteroid or comet that would hit Earth in the next hundred years, let alone next month when that was published. So, September 2015. Again, I didn't really think much about it other than this was getting kinda ridiculous. That's when I heard Pat's segment on the reality check and finally decided that it was worth talking about here. Let me get it out of the way first. Other people do a really good job about discussing why this is baloney. I suggest listening to the Reality Check episode for background on the claim and the NASA statement, or reading the Doubtful News article, or NASA's statement itself, all linked up in the show notes for this episode. Suffice to say, for this episode, so far as the claim is concerned, there is absolutely, simply, positively no substance whatsoever for this claim in any shape, way, or form, at all. Whatsoever. It was made up out of whole cloth, as the saying goes, though I really have no idea why that's a saying. There is literally nothing backing it up. It should not be a thing, because there is nothing behind that thing to go on. Someone threw some excrement on the internet, and the internet ran with it. I'm really not sure how else I can put it. Which makes it somewhat interesting to me how it got this far, and some of their reactions, which is what I'm going to spend the rest of the main segment discussing, well, along with two other claims, and along with how we'd find asteroids. So, let's start with something that I have really think I've only talked about peripherally before. How can I actually say with any certainty what's up in the sky, what's going to hit when, and whether it's going to hit? The answer is that we look. This is a simple case of very simple but very boring astronomical observations over the course of, well, since the first asteroid was discovered in 1801. Since then, we have continued to look for asteroids. We have found tens of thousands of asteroids, possibly hundreds of thousands, I don't have the numbers right in front of me. After finding them, the task is, well, to compute their orbits. As I've mentioned a couple of times, computing their orbits is based on math that was created nearly 400 years ago. And while it's not the most simple of processes or simple of math, once you have three observations or more, you can get an orbit. Once you have lots of observations, you can compute its orbit to a lot more accuracy. I discussed this in episode 94, and I also discussed how we still can't, well, we can't quite get the orbits known to 100% perfection because of uncertainties in our observations and things like the gravitational constant, but we can know to very high accuracy asteroid orbits for more than 100 years out, as in to an accuracy better than the width of Earth, which is kind of important for an asteroid impact, so no, there is no known asteroid that is going to hit within the next 100 years that is sizable enough to do any damage. So, let's go back to, we've found a lot of asteroids. Not necessarily all of them. And we can get their orbits, but not to 100% truth. But that doesn't mean that this September dooms month is going to happen. Well, September's going to happen, but it's not going to be dooms month. Asteroids, like most objects in space, have different compositions and different brightnesses but most asteroids have very roughly, maybe within 10-20% to of each other, the same brightness. That means that we can estimate their size if we observe their brightness, which is one of the most basic things that we observe. Think about it this way. If we see a certain amount of light, and we know that the object reflects, say, 15% of the light that reaches it, and we know where it is because we've calculated its orbit, then we know how much light is reaching it, And so we can then calculate how big it has to be to reflect that much light back at us. It's actually a fairly straightforward calculation, a lot easier than calculating orbits. Hopefully, I can say, of course, here. The bigger ones are going to be brighter, of course. Meaning that they're easier to detect. Meaning that we've cataloged them. The magic round number that we're currently shooting for for continent killers is about 1 kilometer diameter asteroids, which, with a reflectivity average of 14%, should have a magnitude of 17.75 or thereabouts, if it's about as far out as the asteroid belt. This won't mean much to most of you, but let's put it this way. Using very round numbers, that's about 100 times fainter than Pluto is from Earth but it's 10 times brighter than Comet Elenin was when it was discovered just a few years ago. In contrast, a 10-kilometer diameter asteroid should be brighter than Pluto as seen from Earth. For a 2.5-mile-wide asteroid, the size of the one that's allegedly going to hit this month, that's about 4 kilometers, or about an absolute magnitude of 14.7. Now remember, absolute magnitudes are a logarithmic scale, meaning that every change of 2.5 is a change of a factor of 10 in brightness, and the smaller numbers are brighter. So that means if you have a magnitude change of 5, well, then you have a brightness change of a factor of 100. If you have a magnitude change of 10, you have a brightness change of a factor of 10,000. Now I'm getting all of the numbers that I'm using here, from a paper that was published just a few months ago by one of the top people in the asteroid finding field he's retired he does this stuff for fun and he still has the best data around and because he's just doing this for fun he's really beholden to no one in terms of money or reasons to keep up a conspiracy in his paper he shows how many new asteroids of a given brightness have been discovered over the past few years Based on that and on surveys, he estimates that more than 99% of all asteroids that cross Earth's orbit that are more than 6 kilometers in diameter have been found. 98.2% of all asteroids more than 4 kilometers in diameter have been found. 82.6% of all asteroids larger than 1 kilometers have been found. All right, so what am I getting at with all of this seemingly extraneous information that would seem like a digression, and it probably is? The original point was that someone was saying that it's well known, in fact, NASA was saying this, so the claim goes, that a 2.5 mile wide asteroid was going to hit Earth, well, within a few weeks from the date this podcast goes out. I already said it's wrong. I've already told you about how asteroid surveys work, just kind of for kicks. But also, this is apparently, allegedly known. That's part of the entire claim. So why are we only hearing about it from callers into late-night paranormal radio programs and the seedy corners of the internet, including Facebook in this case? What did NASA actually say? Nothing. Until 19th of August, 2015, when they took the very rare step to put out a press release entitled NASA. NASA. There is no asteroid threatening Earth. And they used improper title case because the word is is a verb, it's from the verb to be, and should be capitalized if you're capitalizing nouns and verbs. Grammar and capitalization aside, the press release stated the following in part. Numerous recent blogs and web postings are erroneously claiming that an asteroid will impact Earth sometime between September 15th and 28th, 2015. On one of those dates, as rumors go, there will be an impact, quote, evidently, and quote, near Puerto Rico, causing wanton destruction to the Atlantic and Gulf coasts of the United States and Mexico, as well as Central and South America. That's the rumor that has gone viral. Now, here are the facts. Quote, there is no scientific basis, not one shred of evidence that any asteroid or any other celestial object will impact Earth on those dates, said Paul Chotis, manager of NASA's Near-Earth Object Office at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California. In fact, NASA's Near-Earth Object Observations Program says there have been no asteroids or comets observed that would impact Earth any time in the foreseeable future. All known potentially hazardous asteroids have less than a 0.01% chance of impacting Earth in the next 100 years. Quote, Again, there is no existing evidence that an asteroid or any other celestial object is on a trajectory that will impact Earth. In fact, not a single one of the known objects has any credible chance of hitting our planet over the next century. End quote. So I had two different reactions to this, and neither of them are my normal ones from the past. First, I would normally expect conspiracists to say that this was disinformation, NASA's hiding things, etc., etc., etc. They still do that, but remember, the original claim here was that it was NASA who said, and even though NASA isn't a person, but NASA said that this is going to hit not just some random alleged secret military source or what have you. So the fact that NASA says that it ain't gonna happen should count for something in this case. Second, and this comes from the month I spent in Maryland working on New Horizons with press people, is that I don't really like that NASA had to do this. First, it is kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't scenario. But second, there's the cost of time. This wasn't just some blogger at NASA. This wasn't an ask an astrobiologist that really doesn't take that much oversight. This was an official NASA press release from JPL with media contacts and other things. One might naively think that it takes a press person to write this and you're done. Not so if it's anything like what we went through with New Horizons. You have to at least start with, well, several people talking and agreeing that this is worth doing a press release about that takes time, of several people. Then someone has to write it. Then graphics have to be selected. Quotes have to be gotten from scientists. Several people have to edit it. Then it has to go through an approval process. Then it has to get posted and checked. All of that takes many hours and it takes many people. In this case, likely all of them are civil servants, meaning that they are government funded. How much do they make per hour? Multiply that by at least two because of benefits like healthcare and retirement and institutional overhead to cover things like computer equipment, water, electricity, building rent, etc. NASA responding to this, in the end, probably cost at least $1,000. Now, okay, you might think I'm overreacting. $1,000 might be a small price to pay to set at least a few people at ease. But it's still a cost and it's one that's not normally calculated for ridiculous internet rumors and responses like this. Now, I was originally going to end the episode here, but there's more, as there always is with this kind of thing. One that I've heard more of on the paranormal circuit in just the last few days, and also sent in by Robert from Wisconsin, is the Large Hadron Collider. Now, this is often mistakenly called CERN. CERN is the organization. The LHC is the actual gigantic experiment. I'm guessing that people use CERN instead of LHC because they really don't care about the difference and because CERN is faster to say than LHC. But it kind of amazes me, again, back with this whole scholarship thing when people trying to convince you that their scholarship trumps all of the other scientists and yet they make these stupid little mistakes like saying that Columbus was Jewish or in this case that it's the CERN experiment. No. It is the LHC. (sighs) Okay, anyway, uh, it seems like whenever the LHC is about to be turned on, people panic. This is no different. People are panicking because of ignorance of science and listening to people who use big words. Now again, you might think that I'm being a little bit more flippant than usual in this episode. But there comes a point where I'm really just kind of tired of the same old lunacy over and over again especially when these people have a track record of being wrong every single time. So continuing that theme is the Shemitah, which is a Jewish thing that happens every seven years and has been promoted by generally the exact same people who are pushing this lunar eclipse tetrad of doom-doom. But... Just as they're wrong with the lunar eclipse tetrad needing to change the dates so that they match and leave out all the misses to just count the hits that they make up because they've changed the dates, so too is the Shemitah. Or, possibly because I've heard it this way, Shemitah. It's it's one of those transliteration things with Jewish Hebrew stuff that yeah. Anyway, so I asked my landlord about this since he's Jewish and actually can read some basic Hebrew and is a hell of a lot more religious than I, though that's not hard. He had also never heard of it. He went to his go-to source for Jewish things, which is Chabad.org, which bills itself as having the mission to, quote, "...utilize internet technology to unite Jews worldwide, empower them with knowledge of their 3,300-year-old tradition, and foster them with a deeper connection to Judaism's rituals and faith." I've also actually heard of it before, as opposed to only hearing about Jonathan Kahn from World Net Daily when he's pushing his end-of-the-world scenarios. So using Chabad.org as a resource, there is an entire page called, What is Shemitah? And they properly capitalized the word is, unlike NASA. To quote, As soon as the Jews settled in the Holy Land, they began to count and observe seven-year cycles. Every cycle would culminate in a sabbatical year known as the Shemitah, literally, to release the year following the destruction of the second holy temple was the first year of a seven-year sabbatical cycle in the jewish calendar counting from creation this was the year 3829 or 68 to 69 ce on the secular calendar by counting sevens from then, we can see that the next Shemitah year will be the year 5775 after creation, which runs from September 25, 2014 through September 13, 2015. The observance of Shemitah has several dimensions. In the following paragraphs, we will outline the basics of Shemitah observance. For more information, please see our loan Amnesty and Deserting the Farms sections. Now, I'm not going to actually read to you the entire page, but there are two important points in just those three paragraphs. First, Shemitah literally means to release. It does not mean chaos. It does not mean collapse. It does not mean doomsday, as some people on the internet and conspiracy radio shows are claiming. Second, the Shemitah year doesn't begin this month, as some people claim. Rather, it ends, and the next cycle begins. In other words, a normal year which is every six out of seven if you follow this particular religious practice, which really not many Jews do. From everything that I've read on actual non-conspiracy sources, it's only during the Shemitah that you're supposed to take a break from farming. It's only during the Shemitah that you forgive debts to fellow Jews, and it's only during the Shemitah that you focus on more spiritual pursuits. Afterwards, you go back to normal. Now, in case you want to know the actual numbers, people like Mark Biltz, again, the man who started this whole Blood Moon Tetrad thing, claims that in the last two Shemitah years, the Dow Jones Industrial Average fell 7% and 7.1%. And to continue the number 7, he claimed that during the one before that, Comet Shoemaker Levy 9 hit Jupiter with 21 fragments, and when you divide 21 by 3, you get 7! All right. Stretches out of the way, I just kind of out of curiosity looked up the largest percentage daily changes on the Dow. Handily, Wikipedia has such a list. The largest was by 22.6% on October 19th of 1987. That was about two weeks after the Shemitah ended. The next was 12.8% on October 28th of 1929. That was 11 months before the next Shemitah. Then, 12% on December 18th of 1899. That was smack dab between two Shemitahs. Then, 11.7% on October 29th of 1929. Again, 11 months before the next Shemitah, but I think that's kind of double counting the October 1929 crash. Now, I could go on reciting these over and over and over to you, but looking through the list of the biggest single-day percentage losses Only three occurred during a Shemitah year, and only four occurred within one month after a Shemitah year ending if you don't double count things like the October 2008 crash or 1929 crash. That's out of the 15 if you remove those double counts that Wikipedia lists. But what about market rises? One of the largest rises ever in the stock market occurred during a Shemitah year, And three occurred, again, if we don't double count the same basic event, within a month or so after a Shemitah year ended. All right, well, this kind of really seems like cherry picking to me, remembering the hits and forgetting the misses and completely ignoring the things that, well, completely contradict your basic claim. If this were a real thing, you would expect a very clear signal in the stock market, as is claimed by many of these people advocating Shemitah doomsday stuff, as opposed to, well, almost as many single-day rises during or just after a Shemitah year. So to bring all of this back into perspective, because even I feel like I've kind of rambled a little bit in this episode, I opened this episode with the question that I was asked years ago. What's the next big doomsday? I still don't really think that September 2015 counts, but it's the biggest blip that I've seen since December of 2012, at least I think so. It really seems to be a case of throw something out there and see what sticks, and then if something does, just pile on more. I think probably the whole lunar eclipse tetrad Jewish holidays thing started this, and due to some very... Very dedicated conspiracy outlets like WorldNet Daily, it's been kept alive by them and happily propagated on other apocalyptic media outlets. With that forming the basis, I think the others just piled on and stayed in the public consciousness. Certainly, someone predicts a giant asteroid impact it seems at least monthly, so I really don't know what else would have made this particular one go viral as opposed to all the others other than the blood moon blah 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 stuff. With the Jewish stuff about the lunar eclipse is already out there, Khan, Biltz, and others piled on to it, the Shemitah, as well. And it happens to coincide with a restarting of the LHC, operated by CERN, which just multiplies into the others, and then you co-opt the whole Mars appearing as big as the moon from August and just slip it a month to September, and we have Dooms Month of 2015. So, is September 2015 Dooms Month? Are all of these things that came and went before with absolutely nothing happening finally going to kill us all? No. It's been a while since I've done a logical fallacy segment, so there are two main ones for this episode. The first is the unrepresentative sample, or cherry picking, that manifested in this episode with the claims about the Blood Moon Tetrad and the Shemitah years and how all of these bad doom and gloom events seem to happen just about the time of, well, the Shemitah year or the Blood Moon Tetrads in history. The problem with this is that they are cherry picking. They are underrepresenting the sample, in that they ignore everything that contradicts what they want to try to claim, and then they put in what actually does fit their claims. If they were genuine, they would show all of the data. In other words, the hits and the misses. And then you would be able to see that what they're actually claiming isn't really valid. I discussed this fallacy a lot more about 10 episodes ago in 131, when, coincidentally, I was talking about it with Blood Moon Tetrad's. The second logical fallacy in this episode is the "cum hoc ergo propter hoc, or correlation is not equal to causation, also discussed a bit in episode 127. In this case, again, it's, well, when these things happen, other things happen. And because those things happen at about the same time, well, the first thing caused the second thing. The problem with this, besides the whole cherry picking, and it's not actually true, is that all because two things are temporally related or may even appear to be causally related because you're trying to read signs in the heavens which you think are from a deity, that doesn't necessarily mean that one thing caused the other. Again, I went into more detail on this one in episode 127, but I did want to give a bit of a summary about the logical fallacies in this episode. There's also a little bit of feedback on this episode, mostly from Gavin, who wrote on Facebook about two incredibly important corrections from the last episode. For the first one, I said in the intro to the last episode that the phrase, to wit, is really not used in most conversation, and therefore, my using it was a way to see that yes, I do write out these episodes ahead of time. Gavin wrote, well, this isn't true. I think you'll find that owls use it in conversation all the time, as in wit." Twi- the second correction was mentioned first by Graham on my blog, and then also by Gavin in the Facebook post. The person who I said last time was Australian, who was talking about how all because he has a TIFF image that proves that uh, these images are not JPEG artifacted, he was not Australian. His accent was British. Hence the reference to MI5, which is British, not Australian. I just figured maybe he was an Australian who was more familiar with British intelligence. But with two people correcting me on that accent, well, I'll assume that they're correct. So with that said, I'm going to wrap up this episode, which is almost the length that I tend to like, about a half hour. But actually, I do want to first, before I end, almost tricked you there, I do want to mention that a lot of people have rated the podcast on iTunes, as in a dozen or so, uh, since my call in the last episode, and I do want to thank you for those ratings. Uh, They've increased the numbers by almost 10% in terms of the number of ratings and reviews that the podcast has across various iTunes country stores. I also want to say that there have been four recent interviews of me, uh, or well, places, podcasts, other podcasts that I've been on. So really quickly, there was the Reality Check episode 363. You can find that at trcpodcast.com, a great website. There was the Conspiracy Skeptic podcast, which you can find at yrad.com slash cs. Although he hasn't updated the website, so your best bet is to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes or your podcast service of choice. Uh, there's also Mike Bowler's podcast, which is a skeptic's guide to conspiracy, which you can find at Mike Bowler, that's dot rcom And... For fourth, there was the Dark City podcast with Steve Warner, which you can find at darkcity.fm. In the first three, I talked about Pluto, and somehow we managed to really not overlap in terms of content. So really, I do recommend, of course, listening to all three of those interviews, and of course, consider subscribing to the podcast in general. And for the other one, Steve Warner's Dark City episode, we talked about A lot about science stuff in general, there was very little New Horizons and Pluto discussed, and you might find it surprising some of the views I took. For example, I don't think that string theory is actually a theory. And there are various other musings over the course of the two hours as well. So with that said, now we get to the final matter. that wraps up this topic for the 140th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website, or send an email directly to podcasts at sjrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, on the blog post for the episode, or on the Facebook page for the podcast. And you can also tweet me, at pseudoastro, or drastrostu. stew. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback, and I'm always behind in responding. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast website or service of choice. If you liked it, then also tell your friends and family and several random people that you might never meet in real life.